just before we get into today's episode, I'd just like to warn you that, that there are discussions of sensitive topics in today's episode. Thank you. Joe Scott Coe is a writer from California. In Mass, a sniper, a father, and a priest, published by Pelicanesis Press, Joe uncovered some of the more untold aspects of the man who killed his wife, mother, and then 15 other people on the University of Texas campus in 1966. Known as the Texas Tower Sniper, Charles Whitman's act shocked America, and in Joe's words, this was before mass shooting became part of our weary vernacular. Joe joined me on the Rippling Pages then to discuss that book, and she said in that interview that she was working on an account of Kathy Leisner, Whitman's wife. Well, now she's here to talk about that book. It's a result of years of scholarship, of working through Kathy's letters to give a full account of a woman taken too early by the heinous act. And although Kathy and her relationship with Whitman provides evidence of the disturbing link between mass shooting events and domestic abuse, Joe has at least given us a fuller account and a biography of this young articulate woman in that process. Joe, thank you very much for coming back to the Rippling Pages, my first returning guest. It is such a pleasure to be here, Liam. Thank you so much for having me back and for continuing this conversation. It's very nice. Um, it's really great to have you. It's, it's a really lovely uh, thing to do and, and to, to not only have writers on, but welcome writers back. So um, I've always wanted to say this, actually. You are a friend of the Rippling Pages and it, and it, um, it it's true. Well, oh, yes. Happy <laughs> to be so. <laughs> Um, but yeah, but it is the story that's that's brought you back, and it, it obviously, you know, as we've sort of said there, it is a very dark and disturbing story. But you you have done a lot of work and a lot of scholarship around this subject. So when you said that this book, Unheard Witness: The Life and Death of Kathy Lysner Whitman, was was going to be published, uh, I knew we had to get you back. But let's start then. Let's just start by talking about where that last book left us, Mass, and where this book fits in. I have been writing about the connection between private and public violence for almost 20 years now and in different ways. My very first book, Teacher at Point Blank, was about that on kind of a personal level, looking at school shootings. And um, in mass, I didn't realize I was going to be writing an entire book about Charles Whitman's uh, religious mentor, Father Gil LaDuc, um, I, I had found an account about how he had this mentor and the mentor was uh, interviewed by the FBI. And then again, as a Catholic by tradition, I started noticing other things and started realizing this was a murkier story. So really what I was doing in that book was trying to, I had to do more to trace this kind of warping influence, these warping influences in the shooter's life and Charles Whitman's life from a very young age, both um, inside his family of origin, which was abusive, very violent father, um, and also inside his uh, religious, um, the religious context and the religious ritual that he grew up with, um, which was also had misogynistic elements, had um, ritualized violence in it. And then, of course, you know, after my book was published, where, where this priest had served named Leduc as credibly accused of abusing children. So he, so we have a, we have an abusive father and we have a credibly accused abusive priest mentor. So inside that process, I met one of Kathy's, Kathy Leisner's surviving brothers. We talked about the wedding and the fact that it was a mixed marriage between Protestant and Catholic. And so as we began working together and talking together and um, he wanted Kathy's story to be heard and he started sharing letters with me. And so, you know, his goal really was that he wanted 
He wanted his sister to be seen in three dimensions. He wanted her perspective to be respected and, and um, recognized. And so in Unheard Witness, then looking at this full archive, which is approximately 600 discrete documents, multiple authors, we really get Kathy's perspective as an author, as a reader, and lets us see how living with this kind of a partner herself took its toll over and over again. Thanks, Joan. And and yeah, there's there's so much going on in this story, and there's so many different ways in whether you kind of look at it from a sociological viewpoint, whether you look at it from a kind of uh, you know a reportage viewpoint, but this is this this book is about it's about all those things as well, isn't it? But it's about Kathy, yeah. um, and her relationship with Charles, who you know the Texas Tower shooter. Who is Kathy, and why is her story important? Uh, that's a wonderful question. So Kathy grew up in a small town, small farm town in Texas. She had two college-educated parents. Um, who were working prosperous people. people. Her mother was a teacher um, who worked outside the home as well as inside the home. Her father was a rancher. Um, And and she was a a vibrant, socially intelligent, conscientious, hardworking uh, young woman. And she was very motivated to go to college. She entered the University of Texas in 1961. The book offers a portrait that asks us to say, wait a minute, um, let's look at the way this perpetration unfolds as opposed to, well, this person was going to be a victim or, well, this person, it must have been her fault that she was like that, you know, you can't win. The thing that comes through so much or came through so much to me in reading her letters was her agency. Um, And often when we're, we're looking at stories of abuse, we only focus on the victimization and we don't we we have we have no way of preserving sometimes or we or we are less interested in the survival mechanisms the help seeking behaviors and the and the um ways in the day to day that people who are who are living with this are trying either to make it better to just get through to the next day or to get out and um that's also really really powerful in this archive but i i was speaking at the university of um Texas at San Antonio yesterday, and a young Latina woman who's a social worker came up to me and she she was talking about the work that she was doing. And one of the things she said was, you know, I look at this story and I, I think about if Kathy's story is buried, how do how how can the stories of the women that I'm working with the most now, how do they how do they get out? How do they get documented? And this is this is the questions. Well, let's let's go, let's have a look at. Um, the the source of Kathy's narrative and yeah. the letters uh, that she wrote and all the correspondence that she wrote. I just wonder if you could tell us about the access to these and then how they formed uh, the scholarship of this book. So in 2015-16, the first time that I met Kathy's brother Nelson in person, we had corresponded, we'd had some phone conversations and emails and um I was coming to Texas anyway to do some other work and I met him in person. And at that time, one of the things that he shared with me was the last letter, which I do quote from at the end of the book that um, Kathy's killer, her husband sent to her parents after he murdered her. And this is a letter that the parents kept under lock and key. It was a letter that, um, I mean, it's incredibly disturbing in its link between 
sexual violence as well as the the killing of this woman. We we talked about it. He was he still kept that letter very close uh, under lock and key. And we started talking about the letters at that time. And this is right around the time that the 50th anniversary of the UT Austin shooting was approaching. So, you know, media interest was kind of ramping up again. Of course, Nelson himself was feeling that gap where his sister, you know, he knew that his sister was there, but there was no room for her or she was not yet taking up any space there. And he had saved these letters. Um, they were almost destroyed by accident, you know, left out by the uh, by the trash, by uh, by another relative. And um, and Nelson wasn't quite sure. I mean, even as a 20, 20 ish year old young man needed to keep them like he 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 kept them and told his mother that he kept them. And uh, and once we kind of were working together, he said, you know, I would like I would like something to be written about Kathy for the 50th anniversary. And so he sent me that first sample, which was just over 200 letters. Um, and and then after the article came out, uh, Nelson was very, I, I think he was very moved and very gratified to see that now people were looking a little bit more at what her experience was like. Um, and opening up that part of the conversation. And so as we kept talking, and I was still writing about the letters, um, and I, I realized that the letters deserved more than an article, that they were a substantive sample. And, and Nelson had always shared with me that there were more. Um, and so I talked with him about doing something longer, giving the letters a full consideration and archival reading really in a narrative form for a general reader. I proposed that first I would approach the University of Texas because Kathy had graduated from there and that that felt respectful as a starting point. Um, and Nelson agreed and then shared the rest of the archive. She had this, she wrote these letters, she could write these very articulate letters. And it, you know, makes you wonder about, you know, who are the victims that that don't, we yeah. who don't have a testament, you know, don't have a testament, yeah. so they, they don't have that access. The interesting thing is that Kathy was a fierce correspondent. You know, I've spoken with people from the same generation when, you know, there wasn't texting and internet and, and phoning was more expensive and so forth. But people who had different relationships to their family or just different temperaments, you know, will say, I wasn't writing to my mother three times a week or two times a day or, you know, um, and and Kathy, we can see this before she goes to college. She had a documentary impulse that really is teaching us now. Um, she she was an interesting and eclectic collector of things in this, you know, childhood scrapbook that she gets when she's about 13 years old and and the notes and annotations and the things she collects and the inside jokes and the letters she preserves, it all suggests uh, a very young and youthful um, tendency towards preservation. But but in, in archival work, that's often the exception. You have the four letters Sylvia Plath sent to her therapist, or you, know, you have those documents. You don't necessarily have anything coming the other way. You don't necessarily have them in the same place. And so, so the fact that they're all collected is also unique and speaks to the motivations of the different audiences, right? Who were keeping things and why, and then how they all ended up together. So I, I, I thought a lot about 
people who either feel like I better not write this down. I can't trust my words, which is actually something that does come up in the book later on in, in Kathy's own story. You know, who do I have to talk to? She knew she had an audience in her mother. And when she, you know, when she's talking with her mother um, in her letters, um, I, I think that that always inside there, there's a sense with Kathy that as with many young writers, I teach writing, as you know, um, writing is a way of teaching yourself. And Kathy seemed to have that sense of authorship, even when she really was in so, so many over and over and over again, attempts talking with her husband, falling on deaf ears. Um, he just could not absorb what she was, was teaching him, but she was trying. She, she was making that, making those attempts to break through. Now, it really does give me a great pleasure to welcome writers like Joe back onto the Ripping Pages. And if you're enjoying it as much as I am, why not leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast provider? Doing so not only helps the reach of the podcast, but helps these writers reach new audiences too. Thank you and enjoy the rest of the episode. It's such an interesting, um, well, doc series of documents, I guess, in one way. But the whole thing yeah. is, is this is sort of this epistolary uh narrative that's been that's been developed by that's been written by by Kathy by virtue of of the letters and it and the thing about you know it's it's a the book is I don't want to take away from the story by any means but the book is a kind of literary you know it's a literary thing it's 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 all about someone's writing it's all about inferring yeah. what somebody's trying to say it's all about trying to find meanings and subtext and evidence for that Mm -hmm. on some level and like you know like books and like and like anything you know like any narrative if it's written down it can be edited by the individual the last time we spoke we discussed a lot about cover-ups um but that was cover-ups in a different way particularly around the life of um the priest priest leduc mm -hmm. but there's there's different kinds of cover-ups here in in the fact that we have i don't call it cover-ups in the sense of a of a, a kind of a big big acts but there's things that are not been told completely by all parties in this but did you ever see and in doing this then so you've kind of got these letters and you're looking at them and you're trying to find you're figuring out what's happened did you ever feel like you were overanalyzing did you ever feel like you were imposing a certain reading on what would happen or what was happening to kathy well, so so similar to mass. So I had to be educated myself. I could not just take a hot take, you know, and say, well, nothing to see here. She seems lovely. I'm sure it was sad or, well, he sounds kind of nice. And, you know, in November of 63, I don't know what the problem is. Like, I had to be educated about the case study research. I had to, I had to educate myself. So here I am. So I'm doing this journalistic archival work but I had to understand how to read what I was looking at because we know the end of the story. He murders his wife in her bed, the bed that they share together. And so I had to be educated. So I had to learn. Um, and I, I was already familiar because this is not exactly, you know, my first time talking about this, but I had to read case studies and research about coercive control. So that means uh, Evan Stark, who's one of who's one of the forerunners of that. But also even in the UK, you have Jane Moncton Smith, who is a prominent researcher now and um, a homicide specialist and who has worked on kind of an eight stage homicide timeline as an investigator. Like these things are not like Joe's clever ideas 
And so I know you asked about the, the use of sometimes I will say it's a textbook example. Um, that's that's not like my theory of it. It's applying um, what we can see. So so just in, in terms of thinking from the from the writer's perspective, writers are always filtering. There is no way we're kind of stepping outside of the history and like offering a, a you know some kind of a, an objective view anyway. I'm very transparent about what it is that I tried to learn to be able to see and hear. And my book really is, you know, it's resisting a narrative that was already imposed, which was there's nothing to see here. <laughs> I mean, the, the grand jury says, well, this was an individual who went berserk without any warning to his family or friends. You know, that's a, that's an official document. And that kind of thing just becomes part of the lore and part of a way of talking about it. And so there's a narrative wall that this book is up against. So I had to see the wall. I had to understand the wall and study the wall. And I also had to be educated about what does abuse look and sound like in these kinds of circumstances. I had to learn about how victims themselves will describe in a kind of code for themselves or respond to, you know, Charles Whitman talks about sexual assault. He talks about hitting his wife in a car um, and she will make reference, explicit reference to those incidents without saying it. This is a very common strategy that uh, abuse victims will use, um, which is to glancingly reference the incident. But there's almost a kind of sense of as a coping mechanism, I'm going to take your word for it that this will not happen again, that it's going to be better and so forth. We have to be more literate about that as, as readers as well as, as well as writers. But intimate testimony and learning from intimate testimony and, and looking at what it is. Let, let's just deal with the what. We don't have to go to a why. What if the why is Kathy was leaving him? If we're, if we're talking about the why again for the shooting, about the why did he kill her? We know that, it, that a person who is most serious about leaving is most vulnerable. It's the most dangerous time. And she'd already left him once under the guise of you know, I'm going to go back to school. You're being deployed anyway. She had this separation, this kind of gentle separation reset. And, and now, you know, when they're back together in 1960, 65, 66, when she starts talking about divorce, she gets a bank account. What was happening as being bad enough. And one of the things that haunts me is that he could have killed Kathy and we would not know her name which is the story of thousands and thousands and thousands of women. I, I mean, you know, the UN statistics right now are something like 45,000 women and girls are killed by intimate partners or family members uh, in a year. And that's like five women an hour. What do you think the mode of the way that you've chosen to do it? How do you think that tells the story that you're trying to tell? You know, what I was thinking was the letters need to be preserved. We have to open up a, a, a door to the story or to a story inside here that we can't see. And narrative is a way to do that. And, and Kathy's voice is central to that narrative. Um, and her, her voice as both a reader, as well as a, as an author of letters, um, but I needed to be informed. So I needed to have all of that kind of theoretical, that understanding of what I was looking at to talk about it and to, to tell and respect the story in that way. But it, I think that 
you know, theory doesn't reach people first always, it, unless you are in a certain bandwidth, you're a sociologist, you're a psychologist, you're a criminologist, you read in that field. Um, that seemed to me for this, because the story is so old, maybe not the best way to to start. Well, I wondered then, um, you know, speaking about speaking about the book and, and writing this book, did your did your view about anything change either as a result of writing this book or from the previous book? Any assumptions or conclusions you come to? How are you dealing with the range of emotions that is going to be provoked by the mm. subject material, but also the 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 underlying narrative about about what happens, I guess, to people, isn't it? You know, how do we yeah. how do we infer yeah. the kind of correct? There is, well, there's not an incorrect or incorrect over this, but you, I guess, you don't want people coming out, and you want people to see the story for what it is. Yeah, I mean, I I would say the thing that was really hard to go back to the pandemic was that I was working on this during the pandemic. Um, I was thinking a lot about people who are not safe at home and now had to stay home. And I'm reading these letters. I'm, I'm transcribing these letters. Sometimes I was doing voice to text. So I'm reading Charles Whitman's voice or I'm reading Kathy's voice in response. And wow, a lot okay, of that, wow. co- yeah, kind of, co- you know, coursing through me physically and thinking about how I can't, you know, I'm supposed to stay home, but thank God I have a loving partner and he understands the work I'm doing and, you know, all of that. That must um, be so, that must be so, I don't know, yeah. I don't want to say what it must have been like. I can imagine that could have been a really, you know, I imagine that was a lot of yes. heavy, heavy lifting. It it was. And, and then, and, and yet part of the hopeful element of it was that I, I felt that I was with her. So I, I don't know how to explain this exactly. And I don't mean this to sound very um, supernatural, but, you know, as readers, as writers, we, and we sit with a text, we are, we're connecting. It's this interesting way that, you know, across time and space, we are, we're connecting and to be available and to be able to say, I see you. And wow, this is, this is awful. This is terrible. Um, and then to have to process that academically and narratively and so forth, but to be able to do that and to recognize that part of the work of this is to to take Kathy out of isolation, which is such a cause of suffering, right? So so we were isolated. It wasn't fun not to travel. You know, if you were lucky enough to live in a safe home, it was a pain, but it wasn't it wasn't a horror show to recognize that we could take Kathy out of isolation. She's been isolated, buried, subsumed, and to take her out of isolation and to say, you don't, there's nothing to be ashamed of here. We can look at this. We can see the toll this took on you over four years. So to go back to Whitman again, you know, this is, this is, you know, this is a four year period where we can see the toll that this takes, even with intermittent separation of two years, we can see the impact that he had on her over that time, even before she's murdered. And um, to to kind of watch and wait, as it says in, in, in the Bible, watch and wait and to be with her through that journey, but to be with her alive, to be with her in that struggle was both heavy and also a source of hope, I dare say, because someone else needs to hear that who might be in a family where they're like, Oh, I, I, I understand this now, or someone else who's gotten out of something. I recognize certain things in my own history where it's like, 
I, I can see that and I can have clarity around that and not feel that that shame is mine um, and that we can we can put that in the light. Pandemic, whatever it was, it was, um, you know, it, it ravaged across the country, didn't it? And you can, it, those things you can kind of see on the horizon, can't you? You can see yeah. there, was, there was the warnings there about the pandemic happening. There's warnings there about right. the, the tornado, the hurricane come right. in and people have an opportunity to escape yes is that the same for someone like kathy is her do people have an opportunity to escape or, or prevent sort of these things happening not necessarily kathy but you know where's the intervention where where do how do people get out of this situation i think this is where that literacy piece comes in again about what what are the warning signs look like and we have we still have myths about stranger danger you know um even though the most likely perpetrator is going to be someone in the home or someone that you know um and we have to be more more educated about those things you know in in that the the perpetrator is going to be maybe handsome and charming and white and you know, maybe not, again, it just, it betrays so many, so many stereotypes that we have that get in the way of knowing new information that isn't even really new, you know, 30, 40 years, 50 years of, of research on, um, on the experience of survivors and, and victims. One of the tells is a absolute brittle, unflinching, notion about gender and sexuality and the roles of men and women, heterosexuality versus homosexuality, never mind any other non-normative, quote unquote, uh, sexual identities. This this is expressed very early in, in the archive. We see it from Whitman before they're married. Um, controlling ideas about women, misogynistic attitudes that often, again, can pass as just very normal because they're just, they're ordinary and accepted. Um, when you look at the case studies of someone like Anders Breivik, when you look at the case study of the Virginia Tech shooter, I think it's certainly true in Whitman's case as well, this history of um, bullying, dominating strangers and friends. Um, you know, there's a story about Kathy, um, uh, not only him physically abusing Kathy, but him uh, attacking a friend during a study group and throwing him across the room. He passes out and he throws him across the room. Um, we know that strangulation for fun as a show of force is a sign of someone who is likely to be violent and homicidal, especially at home. Um, you know, so so there are lists like there again, Moncton Smith is wonderful because she has really studied these eight stages, you know, these things that we can see in kind of a chronological order. Um, and, and I think that we just, I think part of the, the block, maybe Liam is that we just, and I'm speaking, I'll speak now from the U S perspective, but it feels like we just feel like, well, that's someone else. It's always someone else. And in my own history, um, and this is something that's very moving about talking with Kathy's brother, I have had the awful awakening of learning that I didn't just know the victim, but I knew the perpetrator of intimate abuse. That is something I think we kind of really struggle with because it's easy if you're if you say, well, I knew the victim, you know, and so forth. But what if the perpetrator is your brother? 
or your good, good friend that you thought you knew, you know, it's and so forth. So that, again, that's kind of a wall that we have to see in ourselves. Um, and, uh, and I know I've confronted that personally too. I just wonder, I just wanted if you wanted to sort of move, you know, towards the end, just thinking about who Kathy was as a person and what you, what you want people to remember, you know, Kathy, Kathy by, she was obviously, um, subject to, to, to some, to abuse and, and some awful things and, you know, a premature death, but there she, she had a family, she had a life she had interest she had an education what is it you know what what would you like people to take away about Kathy Leisner I would say uh, number one Kathy was a person who liked people she as I've said before she liked to document things she loved to talk all of the treatment that she endured, suffered, pushed against, resisted in her own way, in her time, is evidence of that hope that it can be better. Uh, I don't really deserve this, but I don't know how I'm going to get out, but it it can be better. Um, and she she was a survivor until she was not, until her voice was cut short, who was seeking an understanding from, from someone, if not her partner, and, and healing. Um, and that was denied her. And I think it's important to, to see her as that, that person who... Um, smiled in pictures, who would buy earrings for friends just because, who would roll the neighbor's hair or babysit a classmate's new baby, uh, who would help you with the shopping. Um, and and we can show up for her now and for, for Kathy's everywhere um, who are afraid to let us know that they are suffering. And um, and she wasn't only suffering, she was living. And I, I think that, that that's where I would, where I would leave it. Well, it's, it's, it's thanks to you, Joe, that we have, we have that. Um, we can do that now. We can do that on some level, can't we? Uh, thanks. Thanks to your book. Thank you, Joe, for coming on. Uh, the Rifflin Pages, Unheard Witness, The Life and Death of Kathy Leisner Whitman is out now. But for now, Joe, thank you very much for joining me on the Rifflin Pages again. My pleasure. Thanks for being, well, thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> big thanks again to Joe for coming back on the Rifflin Pages. And of course, my biggest thanks to you as well for listening. Join me next time when there'll be another great writer discussing their work on the Rifflin